Talking Tough to North Korea today, Friday, April 12th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Secretary of State Kerry warns North Korea not to make a huge mistake. He also urges China to use its influence to help defuse the crisis. But some in Beijing don't take North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and his predecessor seriously. In China, they call him the third fatty. Yi-fang, er-fang, sam-fang. The first fat, second fat, the third fat. And later, taking the pulse of Venezuelans ahead of this weekend's elections. My mother, she is in Venezuela, and she was declared deceased. She can't vote because she's not alive, apparently. But she is. I can (laughs) tell that she is. That's what they call true democracy down there. From Public Radio International, the BBC and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The words are flying fast and furious between the U.S. and North Korea. We've heard all week about Pyongyang's threats to hit at the U.S., possibly by launching a missile. Well, today at a press conference in Seoul, Secretary of State John Kerry warned the North that that would be a huge mistake. Kerry also called on China to put teeth in its efforts to rein in North Korea, or DPRK in diplomatic lingo. No country in the world has as close a relationship or as significant an impact on the DPRK than China. China has an enormous ability to help make a difference here. Kerry plans to deliver that message in person when he visits China tomorrow. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. She says Kerry's statement hasn't elicited a Chinese reply yet. Not a direct response. The Chinese line at this point is everyone should stay calm and we should all talk and try to move forward together peacefully. You have to keep in mind that the U.S. has been making calls for China to get serious, to get tough on North Korea for almost 10 years. And this has pretty consistently been the Chinese line in response. Mm -hmm. China has hosted six-party talks for several years. There were some agreements reached. Most of them went nowhere. They were breached almost immediately. And basically, it comes down to the fact that North Korea has shown no desire to give up nuclear weapons, even to bargain them away. They see no reason to do that. They see the nuclear weapons, the nuclear deterrent, at least, as being something that makes them a power in the world that's taken more seriously than they would be otherwise. Right. So how are these uh, latest posturings between the U.S. and North Korea been playing out in China and across the region? Officially in China, the line is, everyone keep calm. We're going to get through this diplomatically and through dialogue. But in fact, the People's Liberation Army Daily was quoted as reporting on Sunday that tanks and armored vehicles from a military unit up in the northeast of China in the Shenyang area took part in drills. The defense ministry has since denied that the PLA reported this, but this has been reported both in the Taiwanese press and in the Hong Kong press. Across the border in North Korea, uh, North Korean parachute troops have conducted drills in the city of Sinuju, which is just across the Yalu River from the Chinese city of Dandong. And there actually has been an air raid drill in a Chinese city, also near the North Korean border. That was on Thursday morning. Mm. So while on the surface, it's everyone be calm, 
there are contingency plans being made on the fringes nonetheless. So has that news of tanks and armored vehicles uh, shaken up Chinese who, who are far away from the north? Are they nervous? Well, again, the defense ministry is denying that this even happened. I would assume that in the city of Huichun in Jilin province, which had the air raid drills, they're very close to the North Korean border. The people are at least aware that there could be some sort of an issue if North Korea does make good on some of its threats. But so far, the Chinese official line has been, you know, the North Koreans are telling us that we should vacate our embassy. We're conducting business as usual, and we don't see any reason why we shouldn't. Keep calm and carry on. The world's Mary Kay Magsad in Beijing. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. Now, here's something you probably didn't know about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. In China, they call him the third fatty. East Asia specialist Kong Dan-oh says she learned that at a semi-official gathering she attended in China. I was in Shanghai in November. It was a very important meeting. And I asked them, how do they see North Korea's current Kim? And after the little long-winded introduction, they said, we call Kim Il-sung the first fatty, the founder of the North Korean Republic, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un. And Kim Jong-il was called the second fatty. And they called Kim Jong-un the third fatty, the Samfang. Yifang, Erfang, Samfang. The first fat, second fat, the third fat. They're not that overweight. Well, the, in North Korean standard, they are much more robust. And uh, well, in, I... in their sense, that's the apple. North Koreans are all in banana shape. But those are the apple shape. I said, which fat do you like most? And they laughed and they said, the third one is the most dangerous. Did they explain why the third one is the most dangerous, Kim Jong-un? Young, young and not very experienced and maybe have an inferiority complex. So then to compensate all these weaknesses and uh, shortcomings, he maybe tried to be very aggressive and very outspoken. Also, in tender age, they can make policy mistakes. Kong Dan-oh is the author of North Korea Through the Looking Glass. She has more than an academic interest in the country, though. Her parents are North Korean. She herself was born and raised in Seoul before moving to the United States, but she identifies as a North Korean woman. In Korean tradition, your parents' birthplace and hometown to be your hometown. So you consider yourself North Korean? So I am considered to be a North Korean woman. So I speak North Korean dialect. And that is a big benefit. So, I mean, what does that feel like right now? Let's, uh, you know, it it sounds like you feel North Korean. So what does it feel like to be North Korean living in the U.S. right now with all that's happening? So to have a familiar background and understanding knowledge of North Korea as a so-called North Korean woman, I do have a very intuitive insights that many people don't have, which is a great benefit. But at the same time, my heart is aching every day because other than the Pyongyang residents and the super elite and the privileged class, North Koreans are starving, deprived of freedom and everything. So, for example, my birthday happened to be U.S. Independence Day. Hmm. But I usually shed some tears thinking of poor North Koreans uh, in darkness and with starvation. I mean, these are the images I think a lot of people in the United States have, that people are starving in North Korea. There are these elites there who have this lifetime loyalty to the Kim family, other stories about defectors. Tell us something about North Korea that no one's talked about yet that you feel like Americans need to understand. Well, first of all, if you remember Arab Spring, I got a lot of questions 
will Arab Spring-like changes occur in in the north? I said, yes and no. Yes, there is a potential because there are silent changes going on inside North Korea. For example, I said North Korea's dark, closed society, but during the day they are flattering to Kim and behaving like a North Korean communist. But outside of the party's eyes and ears, they basically try to survive as a new capitalist. They become creative. They are now seeking for information, correct information about their society and outside the world. And that's a big change. And I think Americans should utilize this kind of existing changes and how we make maximum benefit out of these changes to transform North Korea into a more reformed and open society. How would you suggest the U.S. take advantage of that? Well, I've been telling the U.S. policymakers and the research community for the last 20 years that, as I said in my book, only through knowledge and information will rescue North Koreans free them from the current situation of darkness. And uh, we have to have a more consolidated and coordinated and comprehensive information warfare and delivering the knowledge so the North Koreans make their own fate. And at that time, you know what was the reaction? Saying, no, 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 Katie, the North Koreans are making missiles and bombs. We don't have any time. That was 1994, almost 20 years today. We haven't done anything of my line of suggestions, and we have more nukes, more deliverable missiles. Kong Dan Oh, very good to speak with you. Thanks for all your thoughts on this. Thank you. Okay, forget all the fretting about North Korea now and its missiles. A different sort of bomb has officially dropped in South Korea, and millions could be affected. I'm talking about the bomb diggity, titled Gentleman, the new K-pop single by Korean dancer, singer, Madman Tsai. Will it be the new Gangnam Style? That was his first single that scored an unprecedented billion hits on YouTube. Jesse Appel was responsible for at least one of those views. Jesse's an American Fulbright scholar in Beijing, where he's studying the art of Chinese stand-up and doing a bit of comedy of his own. In a fit of boredom, Jesse made this parody of Gangnam Style, which he called Lao Wai Style. Lao Wai Style. That video, by the way, is at theworld.org. You gotta see it. And Jesse Appel joins us now from Beijing. Jesse, what does Laowai mean? So Laowai is the word for foreigner that's uh, generally used here in China. Although, oddly enough, it doesn't apply to Japanese or Korean people. So I guess you would sort of say it would be a like a pan-American, European, African type of foreigner that's dictated by the Laowai term. So it goes viral, and then suddenly you get all these requests pouring in from Chinese TV shows for you to come and perform Laowai style. But I gather there were all sorts of conditions yeah, for your parents. It was funny. I mean, some of them had a lot of conditions. Some of them had no conditions. They'd say, like, okay, send us a script. And then they would highlight two or three of the lines and send it back. And then they'd say, change these. What were some of the lines that got changed? 
one of them was, I'm the type of foreigner that doesn't wait for the light to turn green before crossing the road, which if you've ever been in Beijing is really funny because people jaywalk here all the time. It's sort of like what being a Beijinger is, is when you see light on the other side of the road, you just make for it. Right. That implied that I didn't follow traffic regulations and sort of tangentially implied that Beijingers don't follow Beijing's traffic regulations. And then I had a, a second line was that I am the type of foreigner who avoids the third ring road during rush hour because there's a lot of traffic. And so that implies that there's insufficient infrastructure and that, you know, the, the government isn't preparing the proper amount of infrastructure for the people. And then the third line is that I'm the type of foreigner that doesn't get cheated when they go to the Silk Street Market, which is a um, tourist haven that's known for having uh, Chinese vendors start with ridiculously high prices and then foreigners get to haggle down and they settle somewhere that's twice as expensive as what they should be paying. But the <laughs> foreigner is like, oh, I haggled them down from from $130 for this lousy pocket watch to $20 for this lousy pocket watch. Wow. It, it, it is kind of nuanced, I got to say. I mean, you, you've been studying humor and the art of stand-up in China, and I'm wondering how censorship plays into what's considered funny in China. There's a couple of misconceptions uh, about the way that censorship works, especially on comedy. I mean, people are so used to seeing stuff like The Daily Show and Western comedy that they sort of assume that, oh, you know, the moment the censorship is taken away, like Chinese people will have their own copy of The Daily Show and be bashing their own government. Um, that's not the case for more reasons than the fact that the system doesn't support something like The Daily Show, for instance. I think it's not in the cultural way that Chinese people really look to make jokes. But that doesn't mean that people don't try to get jokes in about their own government. I mean, they certainly do. So I can't let a uh, Fulbright scholar who's studying Chinese stand-up go without asking you this question. Heard a good joke lately? So there was a recent thing where uh, dead pigs were discovered in a river and flowing through Shanghai. Right, we reported uh, on it. There's a conversation that goes between a Beijinger and a Shanghainese, and the Beijinger says, oh, well, you know, Beijing, our environment's the best because we don't even have to pay for cigarettes. We just breathe the air. <laughs> and then the Shanghainese says, oh, you know, our environment's the best because we just need to turn on our faucets and we get pork soup. Okay, that's so, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Jesse Appel, a Fulbright scholar in Beijing, where he's studying the art of Chinese stand-up. Thanks so much for your time, Jesse. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Still ahead, how the Japanese get their buzz on. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. His name won't be on the ballot this weekend, but the late Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez still looms large over Sunday's vote to pick his successor. In one corner, interim president Nicolas Maduro, who vows to continue Chavez's socialist policies. And in the other, Enrique Capriles, the opposition candidate beaten by Chavez at the polls last October. Capriles now gets a second chance to convince Venezuelan voters to move in a different direction. Jennifer McCoy is in Venezuela to monitor Sunday's election. She directs the Americas program at the Carter Center in Atlanta. Jennifer, you arrived in Venezuela just as the last huge campaign rallies were taking place. What's the atmosphere and mood in the country right now? People are enthusiastic about uh, being able to participate on Sunday. People are expecting it to be a calm day. Technologically, the voting system here is an automated system. 
and people are used to it. They've been using this system for uh, over eight years now. And so I think people do expect that it will and hope that it will go smoothly on Sunday. From the outside, Venezuela just seems so deeply polarized between the Chavistas and critics of of the late president. Does the gulf uh, between these two factions seem wider now than it has before? You know, any campaign is inherently divisive. But I think that the Venezuelan people themselves are ready to move forward in the country and want the political parties and the political leadership to work together to solve the problems that are facing the country. And so, of course, there are different visions, very strongly different visions about moving forward. And that's the challenge. How can Venezuelans come together to decide on and agree upon a vision that will encompass everyone's interest to move forward? Regardless of outcome, one side's going to be deeply disappointed. How does Venezuela move forward from here? That is certainly true. The stakes are high. The people view the stakes as high. Certainly those who have been strong supporters of the revolution carried out under Hugo Chavez want to make sure that the benefits that they have gained will continue and want to make sure that they'll be able to participate politically and economically as they have. Those who have not been supporters of Chavez or who have felt excluded from this process of change also feel that the stakes are high for them because they want the opportunity to participate more. And of course, they think they'll have a greater, much greater opportunity if their candidate wins. So the real challenge will be the day after this election, as I said, elections are inherently divisive. For Venezuela, that will be harder because they have had divisions for a long time among the people. But I don't think it's impossible. Jennifer McCoy of the Carter Center speaking with us from Caracas. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to hear some different perspectives now from Venezuelans themselves. First up, Juan Espinoza. He lives in Caracas, where he works for the government-owned TV station Telesur. He says he's casting his vote for Nicolas Maduro to keep alive the legacy of Hugo Chavez. Espinoza says since Chavez came to power, life for the poor and for his own family has improved dramatically. Government is giving houses to people who didn't have houses. Never, you know, poor people can go to any a food supermarket and people can go there for really, really, really cheap prices and get quality food. You see, that's something that didn't happen before. And it's the same thing with the schools and the universities. Before, only the people with money can go to the university. Now, Anybody can go to the university. And Espinoza says Chavez changed something else about Venezuela, its vision for the future. There is like a new generation of children and young people who are like the product of all all these years. And you see they have uh, another mentality about it. They have like the knowledge that the only people who can decide the destiny of this country are us. We are not longer in need to the assistance of somebody like the U.S. government who tell us what decisions we have to do or we have to make. Since Chavez, we we woke up and we learned that we have the right to choose what to do with our country. Espinoza admits that Venezuela is polarized, but he says the divisions are not as deep as they're perceived to be when viewed from abroad. Sometimes I see in the the media and in the foreign media that you know, the polarizing is like really bad and we're, you know, almost on the brink of, of starting a civil war. But it's not like that because uh, at the end, we still like each other very much. We still want the same thing, which is 
the improvement of our lives, you know? Caracas resident and Maduro supporter Juan Espinoza. Other Venezuelans are less optimistic, and it's not just people in the South American country who have something at stake in Sunday's election. Venezuelan rock-the-vote activists were out in force here in Boston a couple of nights ago. The activists had good visibility. They planted themselves in front of the Paradise Rock Club, where Venezuelan funk band Los Amigos Invisibles were performing. Los Amigos Invisibles moved some years back from Caracas to New York City just as Hugo Chavez was rising in popularity. I got a chance to speak with two of the band's members during the sound check. Will you guys vote from the United States? Are there absentee ballots for the upcoming election? They make it incredibly hard for you to vote because they know that uh, those of us that are outside of the country are probably against the establishment as of now. That's Armando Figueredo. He plays keyboard with Los Amigos Invisibles. Armando and bassist Jose Catire Torres told me that it's kind of tough to cast your vote as a Venezuelan expat in this country. So you can vote. What does it entail? I mean, for you, I mean, how complicated is it? Well, for me, living in Orlando, Florida, I have to go all the way to New Orleans, New Orleans to vote, to be able to vote. Which yeah. you have to understand that uh, Miami is, is one of the largest Venezuelan communities ever, and they had a consulate there where you could go and vote. They closed it an open one in New Orleans, which is... Why? To make it more complicated? Yes. And my mother, she is in Venezuela, and they know for a fact that uh, she is from a position because they have lists and stuff. She was declared deceased. She can't vote because she's not alive, apparently. But she is. I can <laughs> yes, tell that she is. That's what they call true democracy down there. <laughs> yeah, you can vote if you can. Venezuelan funksters Los Amigos Invisibles there with another take on elections in their country this weekend. Well, politics aside, the band certainly knows how to party. While we let this track cook away, a quick update on a sports story we've gotten a kick out of. Back in December, we told you about Hovard Ruglund. Ruglund's from Stavanger, Norway. He's a former amateur soccer player who, well, discovered American football. I've watched the last few Super Bowls because that's the only game they show on national television here in Norway. And I bought myself a football and started kicking. Boy, did he ever. He posted a video online of his amazing kicks, some from as far away as 60 yards. Ruglin called the vid kick alicious. When we spoke to him late last year, the video had already gone viral with more than a million views. Now it's been seen more than three million times. We still got it posted at theworld.org, and it's still amazing to watch. Anyway, the Detroit Lions apparently saw the video. Today the team announced that they've signed Ruglund. No word on just how kickalicious his deal with the Lions is, but let's hope Ruglund's left foot can help lift the Lions to a better record. Last season the team went 4-12. and 12. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, you think Japan? You probably think tea. But the Japanese have been coffee drinkers, too, since the 18th century. And the first people to appreciate coffee for fun were the prostitutes of Nagasaki. It would keep them alert so customers couldn't cheat them by running off while they were sleeping and not paying them. 
NPRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The U.S. and Russia seem to be able to work together when they need to, like on North Korea, for example, but they're painfully at odds over human rights. Today, the Obama administration slapped financial sanctions and travel bans on 18 individuals, including senior Russian officials, suspected of human rights violations. At the same time, the Russian government continues to crack down hard on non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, another move that's drawn sharp American criticism. Natalia Antonova is acting editor-in-chief of the Moscow News. She says the government has been conducting a series of raids against several NGOs. All of this is connected, of course, to the perception that they are receiving foreign funds and, you know, maybe doing work to undermine the government. So who has ordered these raids? And when you say raids, you're talking about uh, uh, state police going into the offices of these NGOs? It's actually not the police in many cases. It's, uh, you know, different branches of, I think, the the Justice Ministry. Also, I think the FESBE. What's a FESBE? Um, FESBE is the successor to the KGB, of course, the security services. And so has Vladimir Putin commented on this? Yes, he has. He was actually in Germany recently, of course. And I think the comment that he made is that they are receiving uh, huge amounts of money from abroad. But some NGOs are Russian NGOs, aren't they? Well, yes. I mean, most of these NGOs, they're not registered as foreign agents. You know, Russia has a foreign agents law, which is actually, I think, similar to the foreign agents law in the United States. But a lot of these NGOs being rated and checked, uh, not registered as foreign agents. Now, I want to ask you about one NGO in particular, Memorial. They don't seem to have a heavy handed human rights agenda. What do they actually do? Well, they want to focus on the victims of the past. When the Soviet Union fell, it was very hard to deal with this really, really painful Soviet past. And it wasn't really dealt with on many levels of society, not just talking about government. So Memorial does a lot of research into what happened, the purges and other events. Between the years of 1937 and 1938, a great deal of people in the Soviet Union were rounded up. Some of them were sent to the gulag. Others were tortured and shot. And Memorial is uh, basically preserving the records of that period. Preserving the records and also researching. I mean, because so much information has only been made available recently or is yet to be made available. So they have experts who will sift through all the documents. They uncovered some new evidence about Stalin's role in 1930s purges. Yes, it's not brand new evidence, but they finally backed it up with a lot of documentation, lots of scans. They've uh, released, I believe it's 357 execution lists that were personally signed by Stalin. And of course, that's a big deal because lots of people, both in Russia and abroad, believe that Stalin did not have this intensely personal role to play in the purges of 1937-38, that it was you know, many different agents. But the fact is Stalin did have a personal role in this. So these, these documents suggest that uh, Stalin was personally ordering executions? It's not just Stalin. It's him and several key people that were kind of like directly working with him on this business of getting rid of undesirables. So, I mean, Memorial is an NGO that's helping Russians come to terms with their past. I mean, how can the government see that as a bad thing and why would they raid them? 
Well, uh, I think both Putin and Medvedev have spoken out against what happened under Stalin. I mean, I really don't think that anyone there thinks that what Memorial is doing is necessarily a bad thing. But I think there was just a plan to check most non-governmental organizations. And of course, Memorial, while at the Kremlin, I don't think anyone's really like apologizing for the purges, you do have a lot of people, especially older people, who are extremely reactionary when it comes to Stalin's memory. I mean, I have relatives, like elderly relatives of mine, who if you tell them, oh, hey, um, Stalin was kind of a bad guy, they will react extremely defensively. You know, people mm. can break down tears. They get extremely angry. You have the Communist Party in Russia, which is a very popular state Duma opposition party. They recently had this thing uh, next to Stalin's grave on his anniversary, and there were fiery speeches made about, you know, all the great work that this great man did. And these ideas, they have a lot of support in Russia among certain members of society. So, of course, to them, memorial is controversial. And I, I really don't think that most people who are in power today think it's controversial for memorial to do this, but they're an NGO. So automatically they get stuck with the same treatment as everyone else does. Natalia Antonova, acting editor-in-chief of the Moscow News. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Now for another kind of remembering, the funeral of former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher will be held next Wednesday. The Queen will attend the service and dignitaries from all over the globe will too. Now, back in the 1980s, there were two Margaret Thatchers in Britain. The world's Alex Galifant explains. There was the real one, and then there was a grotesque version built from latex rubber, the star of a satirical TV show called Spitting Image. Thatcher's voice was created by Steve Nallon. The accurate version of Margaret Thatcher was rather like that, relatively argumentative. Of course she was, but goodness me, there was a, a natural humanity there as well. Only so much humanity, though. I think she's sort of Mary Poppins meets the Wicked Witch of the West. In many, in many ways, I think Mrs. Thatcher would make a perfect Wicked Witch of the West. If they reinvent the, reinvent the Wizard of Oz, I shall audition for it. Actually, a song from The Wizard of Oz has been shooting up the charts in Britain this week. Online, there are now scores of videos setting that song against dramatic footage from the Thatcher years. Tax riots and coal miners on strike. The song's now a big hit, but today the BBC said it would only play a short burst of it on its weekly chart show. In any case, others are finding alternative geopolitical interpretations. Here's Charles Moore, a biographer of Thatcher, talking on British TV. The reason that song is sung, I think, is that um, the witch that's dead is the Wicked Witch of the East. And it was Mrs. Thatcher who defeated the East. And in this tale... I didn't mean... So it's a good in this tale and this song, Mrs. Thatcher is Dorothy. Well, so, so in that case... <laughs> Then again, it's hard to imagine Margaret Thatcher frightened in the forest, asking for help from anyone. It doesn't fit the picture. In 1978, before she became British Prime Minister, Thatcher took part in a long-running radio program that imagines its guest as being marooned on a desert island. Beyond the Bible and Shakespeare, she was asked, what one book would you take? It's called The Survival Handbook. Self-sufficiency for everyone. And it even tells you how to make a boat... It tells you how to weave. It tells you how to cook all sorts of things about making long bows and arrows. <laughs> Don't you think that would just be right? Ah, it's a book that no castaway should be without. In a sense, that was the idealised version of Thatcherism in miniature. 
get on with it and take care of yourself, and yet she seemed to leave little room for that in her dealings with others. She was in charge. She would take care of things. Thatcher made people think of a mother or a nanny, a stern headmistress or a drill sergeant with an immovable perm. Again, voice artist Steve Nallen. She told uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, the, our big money guy, she, she said, Nigel, get your hair cut. Um, I can't quite imagine Obama or even Mrs Clinton telling a subordinate to, you know, get their hair cut. It, it, it's extraordinary, really. Of course, feelings about Margaret Thatcher go deeper than caricature. This week, British lawmaker and former actress Glenda Jackson took the opportunity to place on record her opinion of Thatcher's time in power. The most heinous social, economic and spiritual damage upon this country. But would Margaret Thatcher be moved by such criticism? Would she care about the things being said, about the so-called death parties some Britons are planning to coincide with her funeral? about Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. I don't think she cared two hoots about uh, how she was perceived. Until she wasn't anymore, Margaret Thatcher was kind of indestructible. In public life, it seemed no one could affect Thatcher, whether they were enthralled to her power or disgusted by what she chose to do with it. She rendered enemies and supporters impotent. It made her, and still makes her, the object of deep hatred and worship alike. I did it. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Yes, there were times. I'm sure you knew. Steve Nallen in character as Margaret Thatcher there for the show Spitting Image. You can see the My Way video at theworld.org. When there was doubt, I ate it up and spat it out. Iran and the U.S. just can't see eye to eye when it comes to North Korea, nuclear issues, just about anything. One California man used to take pride in trying to help facilitate communication between the two blustering sides, but now he may be facing a forced career change. Here's Jill Replogel from the public radio Fronteras desk. His name is Amir Mohammed Estakri. He's a U.S. citizen born in Iran and a longtime San Diego resident. He's fluent in Persian, or Farsi, the language spoken in Iran. He also speaks Dari, the main language in Afghanistan. Estakri is bicultural, well-educated, and has international business experience. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, his skills were in demand. In 2005, the State Department's Office of Language Services offered him a contract to work as an interpreter. Number one, I've always been interested in politics, in uh, the implementation of policies, The Office of Language Services, known as LS, is the government's official source of interpreters and translators. For the president, top cabinet members, State Department officials, it's been around since George Washington. Working for LS, Estakri's career took off. Throughout the years, I accompanied the highest-ranking Afghan military delegations in their visits across the United States to various military installations. He also interpreted for top U.S. military leaders and officials in the Obama and former Bush administrations. Then Estakri started to interpret for Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Here's Estakri interpreting for Ahmadinejad in an interview last September with CNN's Piers Morgan. Good morning to you. I wish to greet all of the wonderful people of the United States and all of the people who will see your program. Estakri says that CNN first hired him to interpret for Ahmadinejad in 2005. He says a State Department referral helped get him that job. From then on, the work kept coming. 
the Iranian mission to the United Nations always contacted me whenever they had the need for a visiting delegation or a visiting official strictly to conduct media interviews, Western media interviews. But Istakri's unusual work, interpreting for high-level officials from the U.S. and Iran, started getting noticed. In February, the Wall Street Journal profiled Istakri. After that, he got a letter from the State Department. His services were no longer needed. Istakri isn't sure why they dropped him, maybe to avoid any more media attention. Or perhaps U.S. officials voiced concerns about his loyalty. A State Department spokesperson would not comment for this story. I asked Istakri if he ever thought that working for Iranian officials might be a problem. It wasn't really a concern for me. In fact, I was happy to contribute in order to be able to open the dialogue, in order to be able to even minutely contribute to eliminating possible misunderstandings, which unfortunately thus far they've proved to be futile. Any interaction between the U.S. and Iran has almost been criminalized. Jamal Abdi is policy director of the National Iranian American Council in Washington, D.C. The group advocates, among other things, for the U.S. and Iran to end their nuclear standoff through diplomatic talks. When the reality is the two sides need to be talking, that's really a big part of the problem that there, there is so much suspicion and there is no interaction between uh, these two governments. Abdi says he knows other interpreters who have worked for Iranian delegations to the U.S., and it doesn't mean they're loyal to that government. Shema Syed is vice president at the San Diego firm Interpreters Unlimited. He pointed out that Astakri was certified by the State Department's Office of Language Services, which, according to the office's own website, is, quote, the gold standard for interpreting and translating. And professional interpreters follow a code of ethics, Syed says, which includes things like being accurate. Ensuring the confidentiality of those for whom you're interpreting for. And here's another important part of that code. Maintaining objectivity. Estakri says he was always objective while on the job, but he does have clear opinions about U.S. relations with the Middle East, especially when it comes to the possibility of a U.S. attack on Iran. I don't believe we have uh, the heart left in us for another unprovoked war. Estakri says he'd like to work again for the State Department, but it's unsure whether that'll happen. In the meantime, he'll interpret for the Iranian finance minister when he comes to New York City later this month for a U.N. conference. Estakri is also planning a documentary about the Iranian people and a book about everything he's learned over the years, as he puts it, talking for other people. For The World, I'm Jill Replogle in San Diego. Earlier this week, we noted the death of Anne Smetinghoff. She was a 25-year-old American diplomat who was killed by a bomb while she delivered textbooks to children in southern Afghanistan. Another humanitarian effort Smetinghoff had been involved with was promoting a recent trip to the U.S. by the Afghanistan Youth Orchestra. The tour took the young musicians to the Kennedy Center. They also stopped by the World Studios here in Boston. American William Harvey is a student's violin instructor in Kabul. The Juilliard graduate was with them on their U.S. tour when the youngsters stepped inside one of New York's premier concert halls. I made a point to try to enter Carnegie Hall before some of the students entered it for the first time so that I could turn around and see the expressions on their faces. And one that I was able to catch was a guitar student, older, probably 20 or 21, uh, just throwing his arms wide and looking up at the ceiling and grinning and, you know, just couldn't believe that they'd arrived there. 
This was one of the songs that the boys and young men from the Afghanistan Youth Orchestra performed for us at the World a few weeks back. I asked Farhad, a 12-year-old violinist, if he could imagine a world without music. It would be very hard. You would probably not be able to live because music must be there. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The only time the burrs of grinding metal sound delightful is when coffee beans are passing through them. And that's the siren call for thousands of coffee experts who've descended on Boston this week for the annual meeting of the Specialty Coffee Association of America. Baristas, growers, buyers, and coffee enthusiasts from around the globe have gathered to hear talks, see demonstrations, and try to not get too buzzed. One of the speakers this year is Mary White. She's the author of Coffee Life in Japan. And as the title suggests, White's area of expertise is the Japanese obsession with coffee. I always thought tea was a caffeinated drink of choice in Japan and that coffee is relatively new. Boy, was I wrong. Mary White met me at her favorite cafe in Cambridge, Massachusetts to experience a cup of Japanese-style coffee and set me straight on Japanese coffee rituals, including what's called the pour-over technique. The top of the spout in Japan would be pinched even finer than that. So the drizzle would be really, really thin. And what's the point? Because then you can control where you place the water over the grounds, and you can get every little tiny bit. They also say that when you're pouring it, you should leave a wall of grounds around the outside so your water doesn't actually touch the filter. You know, there's so much talk about coffee in Japan. Uh, There is a whole field of coffee history, so I met many coffee historians who could give me the lore on the first arrivals of coffee to Japan. Should we we take our coffee, sit down, and talk about that history? So, I mean, the history is pretty fascinating. I I was in Japan a couple of years ago, and almost immediately somebody took me to a Starbucks, and I was like, oh, so the Japanese are kind of caught on to this Italian Seattle coffee thing, but... It goes back to the 1700s and Japan's own relationship with Brazil. It's got nothing to do with the West. It came to Japan about the same time it came to Europe with Portuguese missionaries and traders in the 1500s. The Japanese who they met weren't very keen. They thought it was medicinal and indeed used it as medicine. The Portuguese who brought you know, Christianity to Japan were in the early 1600s sent back because the shoguns thought that perhaps there was too much influence from outside. But at the same time, they were letting Dutch traders in. And Dutch traders were allowed to live on a tiny man-made island outside Nagasaki in the harbor. And the first recorded people to appreciate coffee for fun were the prostitutes of Nagasaki because they well, not only was this a nice drink... But it would keep them alert so customers couldn't cheat them by running off while they were sleeping and not paying them. Mary, how did you get into this whole Japanese coffee culture in the first place? When I was very young indeed, I went to Japan. A friend who was living in Japan picked me up in his, I think it was a 1949 Pontiac, and drove me through the dark night to a cafe. It was like one in the morning. You get to the door of this cafe... The first thing they tell you in very kind tones was take off all your clothes. Take off all your clothes. All your clothes. 
Down to your birthday suit. Birthday suit. We all did what, what was required. And they painted our bodies with big, soft calligraphy brushes, a brilliant blue. And then they pressed our bodies against white sheets hanging on the walls. And this is all part of some uh, ancient Japanese coffee ritual? or That's this is what the I thought. It, you know. <laughs> and then they allow us to shower in the back alley. There's a nice shower. And um, put our clothes back on, and then they give us a cup of coffee. I really can't remember how it tasted. It was... <laughs> But it was only like 30 years later that I found out by going to the Pompidou in, in Paris that I had been present at a retro, what do you call it, homage to a French artist named Yves Klein who had done this in Paris. And that was my first coffee experience in Japan. I mean, Mary, you, you, you've spent a lot of time in Japan. There seems to be kind of like where we are right now at this coffee shop in, in Cambridge, Dwell Time. We're having this kind of very private moment, but it's in this public space. I mean, is, is that facet to understanding what coffee culture in Japan is all about? Coffee isn't only the drink itself. It's the place you drink it. There are cafes where a particular interest can be served, like people who are interested in manga, comic books. There's one in Tokyo, which I love, which is about trains. So train hobbyists go there. There's some kind of doubtful cafes, you know, like the No Pants Cafe businessmen after work who aren't going to the bars might go to a no-pants cafe where the floor is a mirror and the hostesses do not wear pants underneath their outfits. <laughs> Never mind. I once went to a classical music cafe. I mean, talk about fetishistic. You walk in and it's a wonderful room and big comfy sofas all facing forward as if they were in a concert hall. Then you go in and you order your coffee quietly by pointing to the menu. You order your music, too. You can say, I want Mendelssohn's octet in E minor. And this place is still functioning today? Oh, yeah. There are lots of It's them. so smart. It's more about being there in that space and less about bringing, you know, what you need to do to it. Mary, thank you so much. Thank you. That was really fun to talk about coffee with you. Mary White, the author of Coffee Life in Japan. Now, when I think cafe, I think Paris. Which takes us to the answer to our geo-quiz from yesterday that y'all have been patiently been awaiting. We asked you to name the French singer who gave us this tune called Le Poinçonneur des Lilas, one of the future stops on Paris Metro Line 11 that passes through the Lila station will be named in his honor. Some of you ventured some interesting guesses. Maurice Chevalier, Gypsy Rose, Sammy Davis Jr., Jacques Brel, Sid Vicious, all incorrect, I'm afraid. The right answer comes courtesy of our geotexting game winner. The answer to the geo quiz today is Serge Gainsbourg. That's correct, Serge Gainsbourg. And I know that because I did a report on French music when I was in college. <laughs> the Poinçonneur de Lila, the guy in the metro who punches the ticket. There's like a repeating part where he says, uh, les petits trop, les petits trop, and that means like the little, the little punchy things. <laughs> I don't know what you call them, but the little dots, I guess. We know them as chads, thanks to a certain presidential election. And that was Casey from Columbus, Ohio, who listens to us via the World Podcast. To play along next time, text GEOQUIZ 
one word to 69866. As for Serge Gainsbourg, he still has plenty of fans outside of Paris. In fact, the Sacramento French Film Festival will pay tribute to him this weekend. A French bartender will pour pastis cocktails, and Gainsbourg's songs will provide the atmosphere. To get you in the mood, we've posted a cool video of a Gainsbourg duet with Brigitte Bardot. You don't want to miss that. And that's all from us today. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. Je vis au cœur de la planète, j'ai dans la tête un carnaval de confettis, j'en amène jusque dans mon lit et sous mon ciel de faïence. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.